You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on October 11th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Skeletons in the Closet. Live music by Laura Zahansky. Our first speaker tonight is Guy Carcroft. Guy grew up in eastern Washington and married his high school sweetheart, Martha. They moved to Juneau in 1981 with a one-year-old daughter, three suitcases, and $185. He and Martha have been together 39 years. Yeah. And have three children and two grandchildren. He worked for the state for 32 years in procurement for Department of Revenue and Department of Admin and on the IRIS project before retiring in August, and now serves as the executive director of Love, Inc. Guy likes to travel, he likes running, bowling, and driving around drinking coffee with his wife in search of garage sales. <laughs> he has jumped out of a perfectly good airplane, driven the wrong way down a one-way street in Manhattan, and won a dress like a nerd contest. When people ask him how he's doing, he says, live in the dream, so please welcome Guy. Hi, my name's Guy Crockroft. My dad was Gaylord Crockroft and my mother was Sylvia Crockroft. At least, that's what I believed for 56 years. Six months ago, I saw a show called Long Lost Family, inspiring stories about adoptees reuniting with their birth families. It touched me deeply, to my soul, to my spirit. And I remembered that my mother had once told me I was adopted, but I didn't believe it because I had my birth certificate that had her name on it and my dad's name on it. Years later, after they passed away, my aunt sent me a family tree, and that said I was adopted too, but I still didn't believe it. <laughs> but now, I just had to find out. So, I did some internet research, and I found myself staring at a link that sent chills up and down my spine. It said, order your original pre-adoption birth certificate. I didn't know there was such a thing. Well, it came in the mail, and I stared at it like a deer in headlights. And it told me my real mother's name was Mary Margaret Johnson from Boise, who was 16. And I thought, Mary Johnson? I'll never find her. Why can't she have a weird name like Mary Crockroft? <laughs> well, uh, there was no father listed and no first name or middle name for me. So I wasn't Guy Crockroft. I was Baby Boy Johnson in desperate search of his mother. And so I hired the Salvation Army who ran the hospital that I was born in to find my mother. A couple weeks later, they called and said, I think we found the right person. And I was amazed and intrigued. And then I heard nothing for like three weeks. And I thought, well, they said they were going to send her a letter. Did she not get it? Is she sick? Does she just not want to talk to me? And I wondered. And then I got the call. We found your mother. She's alive. She wants to talk to you. And I was overwhelmed. And they gave me her phone number. And as I punched in the numbers, 
said, well, what, what do you say to the mother you've never met? And I said, she answered, hello, this is Mary. I said, hi, mom. This is your, this is your son, Guy Crockcroft. How are you? And she said, I'm great. I'm so glad to hear your voice. And you called me mom. And I'm so glad you found me. And I only saw you for an hour and they took you away and you were gone without a trace until now. And I said, what's my name? And she said, Sean Paul, S-E-A-N. I said, who's my dad? She said, Jack Caper, K-A-P-E-R. I think he's still around Boise. You could Google him. And so I did. And I found his phone number right away, called up. The lady answered, hello? And I said, well, how do you start this conversation? <laughs> and, uh, my Internet research told me Dad was into running, and so am I. And so I said, uh, yeah. well, she got him, and he says, hello. And I heard the voice of my real father for the first time. I said, uh, hello, this is Guy Crockrock. I'm a runner with the Southeast Road Runners here in Juneau, Alaska. And I run a couple of marathons with some half marathons. And are you still involved with that race to Roby Creek? He says, oh, yeah, it's a great race. I've run it many times. And so we talked about running. And finally I said, I'm glad we have running in common, but that's not the real reason I called you. I'm 56. I just found out I was adopted. And my real mother's name is Mary Margaret Johnson. And he said, well, hello, son. He said, I've always thought about you, and I hope to meet you someday. How did you find me? And I said, well, Mom gave me your name last night, and I went to the Internet, and there was your phone number. And he said, well, well, how is your mom? I said, well, she sounded fine. I haven't met her yet. Uh, he says, well, what's your phone number? So I gave him Mom's phone number, and then I thought, maybe I should ask Mom about that first. So I called up mom. Hello, mom. I talked to dad. Oh, you did? Really? Already? Yeah. How is he? Well, he's fine. Uh, he asked about you. And I gave him your phone number. Is that okay? She says, oh, yeah, that's fine. What's his number? So they hadn't talked to each other for 50 years. So I was real anxious to go see them both. So on July 11th, three months ago today, I flew down to Boise to meet them. Now, I'd seen pictures. Mom had dark hair, beautiful eyes, an angelic smile, looked much younger than 72. My dad had long gray hair, a long gray beard, and a cheerful grin on his face. He looked like Santa Claus, only with my face. <laughs> and so I was, as I was walking out of airport security, I put on a name tag that said, Hello, my name is Sean Paul. And I saw them through the glass, and they saw me, and they jumped up, and I burst through the door and threw my bag down, and I looked into my mother's face for the first time, and I saw her green eyes. They were my green eyes, and they were filled with tears of joy, just like mine. We fell into each other's arms, and I said, Mom, you're my mother. I love you, Mom. And she said, I love you, son. Thank you for coming. Thank you for finding us. And we hugged, and we cried, and then I looked at my dad, and I said, Dad. You're my real father. I love you, Dad. He said, I love you, son. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. And we held each other, and we cried, and we hugged, 
And I thank God for the miracle of reuniting me with my mother and father. And I had my cell phone. And there was a guy standing there and I said, hey, can you take a picture of us? This is mother, father, and son together for the first time ever. And I just turned 56. And he said, wow, that's awesome, sure. And he did. It's my favorite picture. So our next speaker is Mark Wilcox. Mark has all kinds of skeletons. His American father and German mother met overseas, had him in Saudi Arabia, and lived in Europe and Africa all before the ripe age of four when they decided to tell his dad's company they were ready to settle down and raise their family in the comfort of Northern Virginia. Welcome to the stage, Mark. (laughs) Outside D.C., he bounced around as an adult, studied in New England. I'm only about halfway through your bio. <laughs> she asked all these questions. Okay. He bounced around as an adult, studied in New England, then worked in Washington and Oregon for a number of years before temporarily losing his sanity. This is an exciting part. Returning to D.C., he saw the light last December and came to work in Juneau, Alaska for a temporary assignment for the Coast Guard planning its seasonal Arctic activities. Like any good Junoite transplant, Mark spends a lot of time in the outdoors, skiing, hiking, fishing, climbing, and he loves to travel and explore new places. This tale revolves around a place he's slowly become familiar with, a place guilty of feeding a unique sort of obsession. All right. You could say I have a problem. I have a skeleton in my closet, or rather, a skeleton in my pantry. What's this all about? So I'm half German, the land of lederhosen and funny hats. My mother um, cultivated that uh, culture. And um, uh, and it's very close to a place in Austria called Tyrol, a place where they produce an extremely addictive form of meat. It's called speck. One day when I was a kid, and that was like maybe 10 years ago, I was I was visiting my grandmother in uh, Bavaria, Germany, and I went to the open-air market, and there was all these stalls, all these like fruits and vegetables and, you know, meat and stuff. And then and there was a guy who was kind of suspicious. He had this, like, barrel of packaged meat at his feet. Looked kind of, I was, must have been staring at him because he's suddenly like, so I must have looked the part. Um, I walked over and I was like, what you got there? It's speck. I was like, it looks like prosciutto. It looked maybe black forest ham. Idiot. This is speck. Look, I've got a whole load of this stuff. Do you want some or not? Okay. Uh, is, is it bad? Did it go bad? No. Do you want some or not? Okay. All right. Fine. So against my better judgment... I took a slice of this delicious, salmon-colored, gooey goodness, and I put it on my tongue. I waited for a second, and then, holy crap, there was an explosion in my mouth. It was like the perfect, like, it wasn't too salty, it wasn't too smoky. It was the greatest meat in the world. I realized this would be a problem. Um, so, 
I took a kilo home. <clears throat> it sat on the counter a few days, and uh, I just kind of eyed it. It eyed me. It was, uh, I didn't touch it. And my friend came over, and he brought over a loaf of bread and some cheese, and he decided that this would be a good idea. Like, it'll go perfect with this speck. What what could happen? Right? What could happen? Bite after bite, we ate the whole darn thing until we were licking the inside of that package. We were collapsed on the floor in, like, bloated, salty messes. After that experience, I uh, I took a few years off. I didn't see speck for a long time. I was clean. But as the years wore on, I'd go to Germany and visit my, my, my mom and family, and, uh, and I'd venture down to the mountains. And at that time, it was perfectly, I was, it was, it was all so innocent. I just wanted to see the mountains, like, you know, like here in Juneau. It was, uh, that's what it was all about, I promise. Then one day, I'm walking down the sidewalk in Tyrol, Austria. There's really big mountains there. I'm like looking up, and I tripped a little, and like looked down, and, What's that? Huh. Museum of Speck? Are you kidding me? There's a museum? Oh, I go in. Of course, I have to look at this. I go in and walk in. It looks like a normal butcher shop. There's just meat everywhere. And I get a little closer and, gosh, it's all speck. It's all speck. (laughs) Look, it's, it's, it's so good. Oh, yeah, you know, shopkeeper must have sensed I was, there was something a little different about me. She was like, hey, you want to go downstairs? I'm like, me? Yeah, well, what's going on down there? That's where we make it. So I went down the medieval steps into this dungeon-like room, cavernous rooms. Suddenly I was in an underworld of speck. There was pork hanging off the ceilings everywhere, this delicious salty goodness. I was like beside myself. I I I mean, I was I was pretty much lucky I made it out alive. This I was a wash in pork body parts. They were all so lovingly hung to cure. No, no, not cure, to transform into an addictive salty goodness the world has never known. It's a miracle I came out alive. And soon I was haunted. Have you ever seen Sixth Sense? By uh, Bruce Willis, with Bruce Willis, with the little kids. Like, I see dead people. I see speck. Um, in the last five years, I've been to Tyrol like numerous times, and and it's cool. It's, I'm just hiking. I'm climbing, right? I'm going to Oktoberfest. It's it's fine. It's it's okay. I don't have a problem. So fast forward to my to my trip up here. I was at the I was at the Bar- Bellingham Ferry Terminal. Quick, I need to run. I need to get another fix. I need to. What if they don't have it in Juneau, Alaska? What am I going to do? So I trafficked in spec again. I brought a whole load. I, you know, I, I considered counseling, but I just, in the end, I decided this was my delicious cross to bear. So when my friends come to Juno, I take them to all the great places that uh, there are to see in Juno. You know, Mount Juno and then out the ridge, and you know, and then and then there is the ice caves. You know, I've been there like a million times. They're pretty cool, but after some point, it's all okay because the price of admission. Don't pack your bags too full because you have to bring one pound of speck with you. And then it happened. One clear May day. It was actually kind of like this week. Like sun is like sun is out. Others great. There's people frolicking in the mountains. But I wasn't frolicking. You see, I ran out of speck. 
Well, I was, I became like pallid. I lost weight. I was despondent, you know, delirium tremens, night sweats. I was clearly in a state of detox. What was I going to do? I, I decided I'd go down to uh, Panhandle Provisions and get some prosciutto. It's, it's a little fix I used to use to get by, you know, just, just a little something. I mean, it's, it's kind of like feeding spam to a Michelin chef. It wasn't quite the same, but it would have to do. So I went into Panhandle and I looked around and, I was ready to give up, but there in the glass showcase was a little sign that said spec. What? No, no, no way. This is impossible. And, uh, okay, what, what, what is that? And I asked the storekeeper, Jacob, and he said, oh, that's spec. And, and my heart began to race. The blood coursed through my veins. Here he was telling me how they made spec, where it came from, like the whole story. Like he was he had his own personal struggle. I knew it. After uh, eating a lot of speck and uh, calming down, it was all good because it made me realize one thing. Juno was a place that I could call home and not give up my addiction. Thank you. Our next speaker tonight is Brian Weed. Brian is a local historian and photographer born and raised in Juneau, Alaska. He has spent the last five years exploring off-trail looking for hidden history, the man-made and the natural. Please welcome Brian. Thanks. I would have had a longer introduction, but um, the skeletons in the closet theme went well with my work schedule this week. I'm working the grave shift. So... Had to write my own introduction, kept it pretty short just because I think I wrote it in the half hour I was awake this week. So I'm going to be looking at my uh, paper a little more than I usually do just because I'm going to work right after this. Um, My story starts uh, about a month ago. Uh, We were headed up to Gastineau Peak. There were six of us, and we went to explore this mine called um, the Groundhog Mine. Right next to it is another mine called Lurvy Creek. Uh, they're two small mines most people have never heard of. Uh, they're on a ridge on the backside of Gastineau Peak that most people don't go to because once you head down to that ridge, there's really no way off it. So we decided to cheat that day, and we got some free tickets from my friend Greg, and we shot up the tram to cut off 1,200 feet, even though we're the hardcore group. And... uh <laughs> So we get to the top of Gastineau Peak, and during that time, we're taking photos of each other. We're posting on Facebook as we're climbing. And halfway up, somebody makes a comment on our Facebook page, why don't you guys go live? And I was like, Facebook live? What's that? And sure enough, I scroll down in my Facebook, and there's a button that says live. So we hit the live button, and lo and behold, people start popping into our live feed, and they're commenting as we're hiking up this mountain. So we're looking down one way, and I'm like, there's a drop-off right here, and there's a drop-off right there. And I'm moving my phone back and forth as I'm showing people this hillside. Well, my friend Jeff and I were the fastest ones in the group, and we got to the ridge before everybody else and started headed down, heading down to the mine site. And uh, I always get really excited when we get to new mine sites. Um, when I see old buildings and man-made objects, immediately I speed up. 
I start talking faster. I start pointing things out. I'm basically a mile ahead of the group. <laughs> well, luckily, my friend Jeff was fast enough to keep up with me. And uh, lo and behold, as we come down this ridge, there's people working at this mine site. And I'm like, who would be working this mine site? We get to this ditch, and it's eight feet deep. And there's a man in his 40s digging in this ditch with a 12-year-old boy. And and they're clearing the ditch so water will flow faster. And Jeff's standing next to me, and he's looking down in the ditch, and and he says, what kind of shovel is that? And the man looks up at me and says something in German. And I kind of look at Jeff, and Jeff looks back at me, and I say, oh, it's a gooseneck shovel. It's probably 100 years old. And uh, so Jeff... I've never seen one like that before. And uh, so I kind of nod to the, the two digging in the ditch because obviously they don't speak English. Um, the boy never looked up at me. And we continued off towards the mine site. As we get to where we're looking out over this mine site, uh, you can see a rock wall. And there's a man stacking rocks near this rock wall, kind of building a little reservoir. Um, over by some cabin ruins, there's a man sitting there smoking a pipe. And I'm like, this place is supposed to be abandoned. You know, we're in the middle of nowhere. Well, and I hear two people arguing. But I can't tell where they are, so we work our way closer to this mine. And and I pull out my camera and tripod, and I'm like, I'm going to get pictures of this. Well, Jeff's exploring a little higher on the hillside, and I set up the tripod and the camera, and I take a picture of this guy stacking rocks, making this little reservoir for these sluice boxes that they're getting ready to use. And... uh I take a few pictures of him, and he just kind of looks at me, and I said, you know, how long have you been doing this? And he goes, well, I've been working on this wall now for two days. And that's when I realized he wasn't wearing gloves. You know, his hands were all cut and tore, and it was cold out. He was stacking these rocks, like, yay big. The wall was about four feet high, 100 feet long. I was like, man, that's hard work. So I took a few pictures of him and continued on towards the mine site, and started walking past one of the, the mine addicts that were in the area, a mine tunnel. And I looked in, and there's about shin-deep water in there, and there's two guys, and they're, they're arguing over how, how much gold is in this vein in this mine tunnel. And these two guys are just bickering back and forth, and they're holding this little small white candle as they're pointing at this vein. And one of them goes to point aggressively at the other man, and he drops the candle. And it goes sploop in the water. Well, of course, they start arguing louder because now they can barely see. Um, the tunnel itself isn't very long, so they can kind of see down it. And, uh, you know, Jeff kind of looks at me, and I'm like, hey, there's a tunnel right here. And he's like, that's, that's really cool, but did you see this eye bolt up here? And I was like, oh, that's part of an aerial tramway. And... Jeff was in the way of this guy who was pounding that eye bolt into the cliff. And, you know, Jeff kind of looked at me and then headed off down the hill. The guy pounding in the eye bolt kind of shrugged at me and continued pounding in the eye bolt. I rounded the corner and there's this old man sitting there smoking a pipe. And he's looking out over Silver Bow Basin and he's got this hat sitting next to him on a rock. And the hat, it's made of felt or, or leather. It was a soft material. And uh, I sat down next to him and said, nice hat. And he nodded to me and took a couple puffs on his pipe. And and uh, he said, winter's coming. And he said, freeze up, we'll be here soon. 
And I said, are you coming back next year? And he goes, oh yeah, there's still plenty of gold in these hills. Well, my friend Jeff came up behind me and sat down to the left of me. And he said, who are you talking to? Our next speaker is Paula Terrell. Originally from the East Coast, Paula moved to Alaska over 40 years ago. She worked construction on the pipeline and was the first woman construction worker at Pump Station 1 in Prudhoe Bay. She was a legislative staffer for 28 sessions and operated a B&B on Seine for 10 years. In between everything else, she was a commercial salmon and halibut fisherman with her husband. Paul's very involved in the Juneau community and has volunteered a lot with local political campaigns as a hospice and home care volunteer, as a dog lover training golden retrievers for sea dogs. Her other passion is music. While she's trained as a classical harpist, arthritis made that difficult, so instead she sings with groups such as the Juno Pride Chorus. She's been with her husband, Dick Hoffman, for 38 years, and their son, Eric, lives with his wife and two daughters in the Portland area. Please welcome Paula. Good evening. Thank you for this opportunity for me to um, come clean about a false persona that I've been hiding behind for 50 years, ever since I was a child in, um, the, on the south, <coughs> I'm sorry, on the east coast. We lived in a predominantly German community. And what I didn't realize at the time was there were many people who were, had extreme right, right views. But I didn't, I didn't know that. When I was 12, I took my family's typewriter to the local repair shop to be fixed. And I know that dates me because probably most of the people here haven't ever used a typewriter. But anyway, um, and I, I, gave my name to the shopkeeper for the tag. And he said, we don't fix typewriters for Jews. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't understand, first of all, how he knew I was Jewish. And then I realized sometime later that it was because my last name was distinctly and very definitely Jewish. I had never been exposed to anti-Semitism in my whole life, my 12 years. I come from a family that was not religious. We didn't practice anything at home. I can remember asking my dad, well, what is it to be Jewish? What does it mean? And he said, well, it's more than a religion. It's just a culture. It is a culture. And I went, I didn't understand that. I was 12 years old. I understand it now. Anyway, I didn't know what I had done to deserve this man's obvious hatred. But at that, from that point on, I really wanted to just hide my identity, which was not very easy because I was living with my birth name in a community where everybody knew me and knew my background. When I was 16, I moved to the West Coast. Nobody knew me, and so I could create my own identity, and I did. I took on, um, unofficially, a new name. I had false identification, false driver's license, false birth certificate, you name it, I could produce it. And at that time, 
it didn't matter to anybody. I mean, it just kind of happened and nobody questioned it. <clears throat> plus, the other plus for me was I didn't look Jewish. You know, the stereotype of the dark hair, dark-eyed Jewish person with a large nose. Well, I had red hair, blue eyes, and I had a small straight nose, so I could pass, which many minorities can't do. I had created this new identity, and it caused a little bit of a problem because there were two identities, the one on the West Coast and the one on the East Coast, which was real, and I couldn't introduce my friends on the West Coast to the East Coast or the East Coast to the West Coast because I had to keep them separate, which was a bit complicated. I'm married, and I had a son and a husband, and at that point, I, I kind of ran into some problems because my husband and son knew my father and with his name, which was Ginsburg, which was originally my birth name, they knew that there was something happening, there was some Jewishness in there. So I created another lie and I said, well, my dad is Jewish, but my mother wasn't, and so that made a difference. But the denial of my mother's heritage was really a no-no in Jewish culture. You just you just didn't do that. But for the first 18 years, maybe 16 years of my son's life, that's what he thought. Dad was Jewish, grandfather was Jewish, grandmother was not Jewish. And my husband, for the first 20 years we were together, didn't know either until I finally came clean. One of the things that happened with my new identity was I was confronted with a lot of anti-Semitic biases and stereotypes because nobody knew I was Jewish. I heard a lot of slurs and biases like from friends and acquaintances that went like, oh, she doesn't look Jewish, or Jew them down, or, you know, they're really obnoxiously loud, they must be Jewish, or occasionally the word Jew or kike. And while I was appalled by this, I didn't say anything for years, I didn't say anything. I just held my tongue because I wanted to be liked and I wanted to fit in. And then one day, I was with a bunch of women at lunch, friends, good friends, and the, the slurs started to come fast and furious, and I found myself getting really angry. And so suddenly I just stood up and I said, hey, I'm Jewish. My mother and father were Jewish. Does this make a difference in our friendship? Dead silence. Not a word. The women left. I never saw or heard from them again. And that happened a couple of times. So it was really, really difficult. Why am I coming out now? Well, first, I'm older and hopefully wiser, and maintaining two identities was a lot of hard work. I had to figure who knew, who didn't know. Did they know half a story, a full story? I didn't. It, it was just, it was complicated. But also, the violence that has taken place in this country, particularly lately, and those who rant and rave and fuel the fires of hate and discrimination and anger have 
led me to the point where I didn't want to hide anymore, and I knew I needed to find my voice. And so that's why I'm here, and I'm hoping that in telling my story that I can allow some people or anybody to maybe have a chance to look at some of their biases or some of their stereotypes that are implicit or unconscious, because I think we all have them. I know I do, but I don't think, um, I think everybody has those kinds of biases towards things, people, and they might not be aware of them. So that's why I was telling my story. Plus, it feels good. Thank you. And that's how you became my only man of the hour. You never lie. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News, Juno. These stories were recorded on October 11, 2016 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Skeletons in the Closet. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. tonight is Phil Merrill. Phil is a seasonal worker turned local who now works as a school counselor at Thunder Mountain High School. He is currently ranked fifth in his fantasy football league thanks to some mismanagement by Patrick Roach. And he is most certainly not afraid of Halloween. In fact, Phil once threw a grenade and killed 50 zombies. Then the grenade exploded. Please welcome Phil. Thank you. So I apologize about that bio. It made sense at the time, kind of like speaking for mudrooms when the theme is skeletons in your closet. But now, how many of you have been in a wedding? Now, I like not your own wedding, but as a bridesmaid or a groomsman. Yeah. Okay. So maybe you can relate. Uh, I've been in my fair share of weddings, and on this particular occasion, I had the opportunity to groom my friend Jordan. I think that's the right way to use that. Uh, so I groomed, I groomed Jordan and his lovely bride-to-be, Jessica, uh, and they both live in Washington, D.C., so that meant buying a plane ticket, and wouldn't you know it, I found a great deal on Alaska Airlines. 
So once I made it to Sitka, Ketchikan, Seattle, Chicago, Atlanta, Detroit, Montreal, I ended up in Washington, D.C. for my wedding. <laughs> um, now, a couple of key parts of this story is that Jordan offered to let me stay in his apartment, which is great. His apartment is very small. Uh, if you've ever been to D.C., you know, that has these old-style Victorian neighborhoods, just the townhouses right next to each other, right off the sidewalk. Each house has this little fence that you go through, uh, a split-level entryway. He lived on the bottom floor, and there was just this concrete patio. This is important. I'm not just going into random detail. Um, so this concrete patio was the entryway to his apartment. It was a little sheltered because it had the stairway over it. Um, but it was just, that, that was it. That's how you got into the apartment. Once you walked into the apartment, you had the living room, the dining room, the kitchen. And then at the end of the kitchen hallway was the bathroom. The bathroom was very old. It had the clawfoot tub and... Uh, a toilet that didn't look like it could handle the demands of a groomsman party wedding. I'll just put it that way. Uh, and then a bedroom on the side. So what's the first thing that you do when you go to a wedding? You need to get your tux. So, of course, we go to the men's warehouse and even though I painstakingly got my measurements taken, which I really don't enjoy, but I do it because it's important, and you go there, and then they bring out the suit, and it's like this big, so my twin and I could wear this at the same time comfortably, and then they say, oh, sorry, and, you know, this is what we have, and the wedding's tomorrow, you, you know, so here, just take my money, I just want to leave, and I'll put on whatever you tell me to do. So got the tux. Um, got everything ready. The plan was that we were going to go out for the rehearsal dinner, and then we were going to go out at night on the town, and then the next day, all the groomsmen were going to meet up at Jordan's tiny apartment uh, to get ready for the wedding. So, rehearsal dinner was great. Definitely, you know, awkward family moments. I'm sure you all can imagine. Uh, then we went out, and uh, it was really great. I, I put on my best Alaskan flannel, we made it to a rooftop bar in Washington, D.C., overlooking the west wing of the White House. So I basically met Obama. Uh, I see a, a cute girl over in the side of the bar, and I, I go up and introduce myself. I say, hi, I'm from Alaska, here for a wedding. Uh, you know, confident that dropping Alaska would cause any woman to swoon. And so our our eyes meet, and she looks at me, and she says, you wore that to a wedding? And so I knew at that point that things were going to go really great. <laughs> so needless to say, got home to, or to the apartment, and just Jordan and myself, uh, we crash, wake up the next morning. And I slept about as good as you can imagine, sleeping on a couch. Uh, opened my eyes and woke up feeling great until I decided to move. 
And immediately I needed to make an emergency call to Ralph on the big white telephone. If you know what I mean. So rushed into the bathroom, called Ralph. We had a short but serious conversation. And I felt, I felt better. Um, but not great. You all know that feeling. I don't need to get into that. Something wasn't right. And so the plan was the grooms when we're going to show up to Jordan's apartment. It's very small. We're all here. I feel horrible. It's the day of the wedding. We all get dressed in our tuxes. Uh, Jordan is, is stressed, nervous because it's his wedding day. More and more people are, are, are uh, in this apartment. And I, I just see the pathway to the bathroom is becoming more and more obstructed. Let's just say that. And so I I could feel Ralph calling me again, and I knew I had to answer, but I I couldn't answer on the phone, and I didn't know what to do. And so I looked around, and I did the only thing that made sense at the time is I went outside, and Jordan and Jess, if you are listening to this tonight, this is the skeleton that I needed to have released I threw up all over your porch of your new apartment on the day of your wedding and I tried to clean it and there were little kids that I tried to play interference but it was really hard and I felt bad and I didn't know what to do and I'm pretty sure some of it got on my tux and then I just stood there with you at the church and I smiled like nothing was wrong. But inside I knew it was wrong. And I'm sorry. Our next speaker is Sam Keto. Sam was born and raised in Alaska and first moved to Juneau in 1991. He earned his engineering degree from UAA and has worked all over Alaska on projects in engineering, transportation, community planning, and government relations. Currently, he's serving as the representative for House District 33, which includes downtown Juneau, Douglas, Skagway, Haines, Kluckwan, Gustavus, and Excursion Inlet. He's the father of a Juneau Douglas High School senior. Go Bears! Thank you, Alita. Um, so I still get nervous speaking in front of people, so I guess that's skeleton number one. Um, so my name is Sam Keto. I was born and raised in Alaska, and I think one thing I wanted to share is, is kind of a skeleton. There are a few others kind of that's sprinkled out through the stories, too. And so these stories are related, maybe mostly in my head, but I feel like they're related. Um, so when I was growing up, I was born in Anchorage, raised Fairbanks in Anchorage, and spent time here in southeast Alaska as a younger kid. And, you know, back then, I really didn't know what it was like to be in Alaska. I just was. And last month, we heard people talking about sourdoughs, chitacos, and moving to Alaska, seeing Alaska for the first time, and knowing that they were home. When I was growing up, Alaska was Alaska, but there was something bigger about the world. And I loved Fairbanks when I was growing up. 
Um, but when I was about 12, my father got a job in Anchorage and said, we're moving to Anchorage. And I was so excited. It was moving to the big city. And so I well, fully embraced this challenge. And um, I came back from summer camp one time and or that summer, and my family was gone. They had already moved, and I caught up with them. That fall, I started school. And the most interesting thing is, I guess, growing up in Fairbanks back in the day and age when we didn't have as much media is I didn't always understand all the games. You know, I'd played kickball in the in the uh, schoolyard, and so I was standing on the sidelines of the field. My cousin was playing this game. They're running back and forth with this oblong-looking ball, and he asked me if I wanted to play. And I'm like, you know, they grab the ball, they run back and forth. Sure, I'll give it a shot. And I got out there on the field, and for some reason, they passed the ball to me. It was my first time ever playing this game, and I grabbed the ball, and there was a whole bunch of people all over that way. I didn't want to run that way, so I turned around and ran the other way, and everybody started yelling at me. I'm like, why are they yelling at me? And I got to the end, and I'm like over here at the end by myself, and everybody's like, you ran the wrong way. So that's, a, that's one of the skeletons. I guess the thing uh, maybe that resulted in me not particularly wanting to play football when I got into high school. Um, so I've not been a huge football fan because the, the game traumatized me in the sixth grade. Uh, but that's part of the story. The other part of the story really is uh, when I was in high school, I uh, was starting to realize, and many of you probably know my father, but realized that many people, even in a town the size of Anchorage at the time, fairly large, knew my father and knew me. So I'd go places and they'd say, oh, you're Sam Keto's son. Um, and because I had the same name, it was a little bit frustrating because I was not my own person and I felt like I needed to be something different, something more um, independent. And it kind of hit me really strong one time. I don't know how old I was, but I was maybe not quite old enough to drink. And some friends and I actually walked into a bar, um, took a left, and walked past the table, and somebody goes, Sammy. And not many people called me Sammy, usually my father's friends. And I turned, and there's a table full of my father's friends. Um, How are you doing? I didn't know you were old enough to drink. Smiled, nod, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, you got to say hi to your father for me. So we turned around and left and didn't go back into the bar. And needless to say, I didn't actually go say hi to my father that time. And I never actually heard from whether he heard from them. So this is one of those skeletons kind of hanging out back there that I'm really not sure if has been realized. But uh, perhaps uh, my father did hear and just didn't say anything to my mother about it. Uh, but I realized then that it was going to be very difficult for me to be my own person in a community where so many people knew my father. So I decided I was going to go to college outside of Alaska. Um, at the time, my father was serving on the Board of Regents, and he's like, well, you should go to school at the University of Alaska. I'm like, no, no, no. So I did actually go outside, went to school for a couple of years, came back, and uh, got my degree ultimately from the University of Alaska. So I realized, good school, good place. Um, but I still was living under the shadow of this, this person who was larger than life. And so I got my college degree, decided, you know, I'm going to try and move. I want to get someplace where nobody knows me. And so I, I packed everything up after a year after college and moved to Seattle and was living in Seattle, got a job with an engineering firm, but it was an Alaskan engineering firm. Great firm, but a month after being there, they shipped me out to uh, Dutch Harbor, and I was out in Dutch Harbor for two and a half months. So trying to leave Alaska, I, I keep, kept getting pulled back. Um, the company ultimately moved me to Juneau, which is how I ended up here in 1991, and, and I 
um, have been in Juneau most of the time ever since. But there was a period, a, a moment, I guess, in that uh, uh, time where I had actually was working for a company that was closing their Juneau office, and they offered me a job in New York, and I was thinking, well, um, what am I going to do? And I did some soul searching, realized, you know, I, I like it here in Juneau. This is my home. Alaska is something, someplace where uh, I was trying to get out for a long time, but I really have most of the uh, uh, connections to friends, family here, even though now my family's mostly moved on. Um, so came back here. I did move to Anchorage for a little while, and then uh, when I became a single father, one of the things I remembered about my single time here in Juneau, it was a great place to not be single. It was a great place to be uh, with a family, and so I brought my daughter back here and was committed to, I'm going to be here from the time that she's in kindergarten. She can graduate from high school all in the same place, which is an opportunity I didn't have. I was excited about not having that opportunity, but when I look back, I thought um, there are friends that, that she will have all the way through her high school career. And so um, we ended up here. We settled here. I finally found a place where I feel like I'm home, and it's been a great place for me, for my daughter to grow up, who's sitting in the back now, senior at Junior Douglas High School, and uh, getting ready to figure out what she wants to do for college, and now she's actually looking out of state to go to college, and I completely understand it because I kind of went through that same thing. So uh, not exactly um, a, a strong skeleton in your closet kind of story, but a story that I thought of when I was asked to, to make this presentation. So thank you. Our final speaker for this evening is Jim Donahue. Jim lived in New York until he was 16, then 12 years in Arizona, 9 years in Anchorage, 36 years in Juneau. If you're quick with the math, that adds up to 73. Jim has one wife with an assortment of daughters, sons-in-law, and, uh, and grandchildren. His family is his first passion. Travel is his second passion. Please welcome Jim to the stage. But the stage makes me feel so tall. It was the summer of 1971, July. My wife and I had just celebrated our seventh wedding anniversary. And the honeymoon was over. You think that's funny? The honeymoon was over because I had the seven-year itch. How many of you have heard about the seven-year itch? Yeah? It statistically is proven that after seven years, we need to change some of our relationships. For example, seven years on the job, it's time to look for a new job. I've had my boss tell me that one time. <laughs> and, you know, you're living in a house and the honey-do list gets too long. Seven years, it's time to get a new house. New car, after seven years. New truck, after seven years. Statistically, it's proven that marriages do struggle after seven years. And my wife and I have an, an impediment in our marriage. And she also has seven-year rich, by the way. The impediment was 
a mattress that we'd gotten as a wedding present. It wasn't a king-size mattress or a queen-size. It was a double bed that my very cheap parents bought us. And it sagged and had bumps. And after seven years and three kids, the honeymoon was over. And we came to the agreement because we had spent a lot of time camping on a foam mattress on a piece of plywood saying, we need a new bed, a king-sized bed. So we went down to Pruitt's department store. This was a mega department store, furniture store in Phoenix, Arizona. Covered six acres. It was a hot summer afternoon. We walked in and no customers. Two or three salesmen, one came right over and said, how can I help you? I said, we need a new bed. We need a king-size bed. He says, no, you need a California king-size bed. <laughs> As he looked up at me. And I said, okay, show us. So he took us over to the mattress department, which I think covered one acre of those six acres. And he said, this is the one you need. California King Sealy Posturepedic Mattress. Box springs and frame. And how much is this? $300. But $300 45 years ago was a lot of money for a struggling family. And I said, eh, we need to talk about this. So my wife and I are walking around. She wants to get it. I said, ah, no. Finally, the salesman comes over and he says, two things he says to me that sold that mattress. One was, what's $300 for something you spend a third of your life doing? Uh-huh. And he said, the second thing is, if you keep this mattress 10 years that will only be $30 a year. Now, I'm a chronological, pragmatic personality. And I says, we'll take it. <laughs> and on the way home, I got to thinking about what he said. This is something you spend a third of your life doing. It reminded me of a song from when I was a kid in the 50s. Most of you probably won't remember because you're not as old as me. But it went, lucky, lucky, lucky me, I'm a lucky son of a gun. I work eight hours, I sleep eight hours, I have eight hours of fun. Now, as a kid, that song I thought was kind of depressing. Is this all there is to life? <laughs> Working eight hours, sleeping eight hours, and having eight hours of fun? But you know, an interesting thing happened. They delivered that mattress, and I was just as rested. With six hours sleep, I now had two extra hours of sleep. Two extra hours to have fun. So I had ten hours of fun and working eight hours and sleeping six hours. This was a wonderful purchase. But, you know, I, I did say this was seven years of marriage, and, and it certainly helped our relationship. But the other thing was I had been in a job seven years and in a house seven years. And it was time to do something different. Move on. So I rode up to uh, Anchorage to see if I could get a transfer. And in August of 1971, here we are loading up the truck. And I'm trying to put this California king-size mattress on top of the truck. My wife says, no, 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 no. That's, that's not going to happen. And I said, but we got to get it up to Alaska. She says, ship it. And we did. Now, an interesting thing also about this mattress was I had a, 
skeleton in a closet wasn't seven-year itch. It was the fact that I am a chronological pragmatic, and I said, if I keep this thing 10 years, it's $3 a year. And after nine years in Anchorage, we moved to Juneau, and I says, but if I keep it 20 years? Huh? It's only $15 a year. And then I thought, well, you know, if I can keep it 30 years, it's just $10 a year. And I was moving right along towards that 30-year mark. And I came home one afternoon, and I think we were up to almost 26 years. And, which is $12 a year, by the way. And, and I walked in the front, well, I, I knew something was up when I walked on the front porch. Here's the box spring sitting on the front porch. And I walked in, we had a two-story house, and my wife had the mattress wedged between the ceiling and the stairs. And, but she couldn't get it out. She had taken the queen-size bed out of our guest room and moved it into the master bedroom and said, this is, this is it. We are, we are getting rid of this mattress. You know, if you can't change the things in your life, you need to change your relationship to the things in your life. And, and that's kind of the lesson she taught me is because for the next 23 years, we've gone through three sets of mattresses and box springs. <laughs> all up to my objections. And a lot of them, they all were well over $300. So, I leave you with the song. How many of you want to join? <laughs> lucky, lucky, lucky me. I'm a lucky son of a gun. I work eight hours. I sleep eight hours. I have eight hours of fun. <laughs> KTOO News, Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on October 11, 2016. The theme for the evening was Skeletons in the Closet. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Rich, Steve Sewing, Christian Stouter, and Sarah Hannon. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night.